Hi, everybody. I'm Nick Forster, host of the long-running radio program E-Town. I want to welcome you to Purple State. Purple State is an experiment or an exploration, really, in which we're trying to understand the root causes of what's dividing us as an American society and to find a path out of that contentious political environment we find ourselves in today. So the red state, blue state thing has been on my mind a lot lately. Seems like we've gotten to a place where not only do the elected leaders not trust one another or play nicely with each other, but Americans don't trust the government. And increasingly, we don't trust or respect one another. This state of affairs is neither productive, uh, nor does it really reflect a version of America that I think we all believe in and should be aspiring to. So I'm not an expert in the subject, but I feel like as a citizen, I wanted to both understand how we got here and maybe look for some way that I could do something to ignite a conversation, try to find some common ground, particularly around issues that we all really care about. Not too long ago, I was playing with the band Hot Rise that I've been in for 40 years now. We were down in Georgia. And at the end of the show, I was sort of wrapping things up as I often do and saying something like, you know, we're not really as divided as it may seem out there. We're going to be okay. We've got a lot in common. We've got democracy. We've got checks and balances. We've got an independent judiciary. And as soon as I said those words, independent judiciary, somebody from the back of the room uh, yelled, keep your fucking politics to yourself. <laughs> I was kind of stunned. But what it really told me was that people are ready to pounce. You're either on one side or another. And there's not really space for any kind of sentiment or dialogue that connects these two increasingly opposing teams. That put me in mind of the mid-1850s, when there was also a lot of that rancor and divisiveness rooted in some core differences in people's value systems. And that, of course, led to the loss of more than 600,000 American soldiers' lives during the Civil War, followed by untold horrors that followed during the violence in, involved with Reconstruction. So we're not at that point yet, but it does feel particularly volatile and tense being in this modern era when we have a 24-hour news cycle and access to information. It feels like we're all sort of addicted to the tension that's going on in a funny way, checking our phones for news feeds. It feels kind of rotten. It's not healthy for us, I don't think, as individuals or for American society. So I come from a background of old New York families on both sides uh, my mother's and my father's sides, both of their families had been involved in politics in New York State and beyond for many generations. My mother's side, primarily on the Democratic side, and my father's on the Republican side. And it didn't seem so strange back then for these two forces to come together in the family I grew up in. We navigated differences of opinion, and we were patriotic. We believed in a lot of the same things, and we listened to each other. It's part of what motivates me to try to contribute something at this time when nastiness has become the norm. We're trying to exercise civility as a form of resistance in a way. It doesn't mean we'll stay away from the hot button issues, but that we'll dive into them and try to arrive at a better, more informed understanding of the things that affect us all, that we can make a difference, that we can make some kind of an impact, positive change that we can all get involved with. Our upcoming episodes feature discussions and conversations and interviews with a wide range of experts and thoughtful people. And I hope we'll also hear from you. You can find us on social media at Team Purple State or online at purplestate.org and follow our series during this important midterm election season. We kick things off here in episode one, We the Purple, 
with a panel discussion in front of a live audience at E-Town's facility in Boulder, Colorado, just a few weeks ago. Thanks for being here. Thanks, everybody. We're excited. Glad you're here. We have an amazing panel. Um, I want to just mention that we've got over at the end, Carla Fredericks is an associate clinical professor of law at CU, and she directs the CU American Indian Law Clinic and the American Indian Law Program. She's a member of the Mandan Hidatsa and the Arikara Nations in North Dakota, and she's also a native Boulderite. That's Carla Fredericks. Next to her is Dr. Anand Soki. He's an assistant professor at CU's political science department whose research focuses on American electoral politics, interpersonal networks, and the roots of polarization. So, perfect. Thank you for being here. And next to Anand is Judge Jean Dubofsky, the first woman and the youngest justice ever elected to Colorado Supreme Court back in the 80s. As a civil rights attorney, she led the fight to strike down Amendment 2, which would have legalized discrimination on the basis of sexual or gender orientation. Judge Dubofsky, welcome. Thank you for being here. And over here on the end, Nick Troiano, executive director of Unite America. He started out collecting signatures in front of ballot boxes before he was old enough to vote in his home state of Pennsylvania. He ran for Congress when he was 24 years old, and um, he now promotes independent candidates in his role with Unite America. So Nick Troiano, thank you for being here. So there's lots of ways to think about how we got here. And I don't think it's anybody's fault. There's so many factors. You know, some say that the end of the Cold War took away an outside and unifying bad guy, or that the growing religious diversity or decline in religious uh, participation, the erosion of the middle class, the erosion of the white Christian majority, the lack of a military draft or mandatory national service. There's something called geographical sorting, where people self-select to be in among uh, like-minded people. There's a similar, I think there's political party sorting. And there's new rules. There's new rules for Congress. There's new rules for political parties. Um, there's a lot of new money, uh, Citizens United and mega donors. There's new districts f through gerrymandering. And I guess there's something you might call the deprofessionalization of media and communications around news and sharing information that helps support these little bubbles and silos that we kind of um, stick in if we're, you know, we get our, our own ideology reinforced. So why don't I start with you, Carla? Do any of those resonate as being a thing that seems like a, a good root cause for what's going on out there? Well, I should start by saying I'm not an expert in politics. I really come to this through a particularized lens, which is the lens of working with um, Native American people and tribal governments. And as you were talking um, in the introduction and, and as we were talking downstairs, it just struck me that um, this is a new story for a lot of America, but it's not a new story for us in Native America. That our values and our way of life and our system has always felt polarized um, in a certain respect from the larger kind of American dream, American ethos, whatever. So I should start by saying that. You know, I guess any other reflection I might have is as a citizen and somebody who, who does follow this, I think, with a level of interest. 
And I really think that we've lost track of um, having commonality in our values, and we have found some level of comfort in um, this idea of entrenchment of position. I actually work day to day a lot with tribal leaders who um, most recently, the tribal leader who I work with most closely is Dave Archambeau, who led his tribe in their fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline. And one of the things that he said to me, which was so um, encouraging, I think, and so wise, was we have to get out of this us versus them mentality. And for him, I think it was, and, and probably for me too, it's about thinking about values as an indigenous person and our values about commonality and the concept of mitukatio um, yasin, which is we are all related, and really trying to honor that um, in what we do. And I think as Americans, our commonality has been lost and our creed needs to be reestablished as having a common identity. One of the things where it all kind of breaks down is in terms of the place from which you centralize your values. So are your values based on um, this idea of common humanity, human rights, um, human dignity? Are they based on money? That's a huge question right now, I think. Um, for Indian people, you know, we are quite politically divided and kind of bipartisan and all kind of shades in between. Um, there's a lot of evangelical Native Americans in Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota. That's Indian country, and it's red. And if you think about it from a human rights perspective, um, they're not interests that you would think would necessarily be aligned. So there's a lot of complex factors going into this. I think what Dave meant was we can't entrench ourselves in a certain position and then see somebody else in an oppositional way, um, that we really have to come together and have conversation and discussion as opposed to debate and really try to get at the essential truth of things together. Yeah, and it's almost more a spiritual approach than a political approach. Mm -hmm. And Nick, tell me about you know your perspective about, obviously this is your bread and butter, you're dealing with independent political candidates, trying to bridge the divide between Democrats and Republicans, putting issues first. First of all, maybe tell us a little bit about how you think we arrived at this particular spot in our current politics. Well, thanks for having me and hosting this conversation. It's an important one uh, because I think the dysfunction and division in our politics is the biggest threat we face. Uh, Washington warned us of this in his farewell address. He said the alternate domination of one faction over another sharpened by the spirit of revenge is itself a frightful despotism. Without a sense of togetherness, we don't have much. We can't get much done. So it is a root cause, it is a fundamental problem to every other challenge we face, which is why this cause is so important to me and to our organization, which is trying to bridge this divide. How we got here is human nature. We're wired to be groups. It's how we survived in nature for many hundreds of years. And so it's an exploitation of that human nature by the media and by politicians and by interest groups is a way that they've been able to polarize us. And so it isn't so much that the two parties are the problem, it's the partisanship that has really rooted itself. It's become a winner-take-all, zero-sum politics where winning is the only thing that matters. Not so much outcomes of policy anymore, but just winning elections and we lose sight of the fact that the point of governance is actually to narrow differences and to solve problems, not to widen them for the purpose of getting reelected. Mm -hmm. 
And so it was, it was a conscious political decision to shift from statesmanship and, and collaboration and cooperation to politics as football, which with a winner-take-all mentality. I think so, because it doesn't serve us very well, but it certainly serves the political class very well. You know, Congress has a 10% approval rating, 90% of them get reelected. It works well for them. Keeping us in a constancy of division, pitting one American against each other, is a political strategy. And it works when there's only two choices, because it's binary. Someone's going to win, someone's going to lose. They don't care how many people vote. It's only about getting one more vote than the other person. And so it's about being against the other person, not for what you stand for, which is why there's a rise in something called negative partisanship. It isn't so much anyone really loves their own team anymore. It's that we really hate the other side. And so when Pew asks people, how do you view the other party, it's about 60% now of Democrats who view Republicans very unfavorably and vice versa. That's three times the level of it was just 20 years ago. So from our perspective, what we're trying to do by paving a path for people who want to run for office outside the parties is to put leadership forward that can actually change that dynamic altogether. Because in a three-person race, you just can't be against one person. You have to stand for something and to offer leadership that isn't beholden to one faction or another, but can actually represent their entire constituency. Hi, Team Purple State. Just a quick note. Nick Troiano is referencing a 25-year study by the nonpartisan Pew Research Center looking at political polarization in America. We'll include a link to the research on our website, purplestate.org, under episodes. Okay, kicking it back to the panel. Anand, maybe you can, since you're, you're a specialist in this area, uh, thinking about, about uh, divisiveness and the root causes and, and where we are and how we arrived here, what's your take? I'll backtrack and say a couple of things about how we got here and um, have we been here before. If, when we look at this um, from the academic perspective, we tend to kind of look at it in two levels. We look at uh, polarization in government and then we kind of look at polarization in the mass public. And if we think about polarization in government, and we think about division and dysfunction in Washington, it's bad now. And it's bad now by the numbers that we look at. But has it been bad before? It has. And if we look at like the 1890s, that was an incredibly polarized government, an incredibly polarized time. Incidentally, also a time of populism, which we're kind of seeing in different forms right now as well. And, and the Gilded Age. Yes, yes. So if we think about our history, there are things to, to remember and, and draw upon. So has government been this divided before? It has. Is it terribly divided? Now it is. Is the current period of polarization that we're seeing in Washington a really immediate thing? No, it goes back about 40 plus years where we really start to see the spread in the data to the 1970s. And it's continued to grow throughout that time. And it's grown both in the House and in the Senate, um, if we're looking at the national level. And what that tells us is a couple of things, and it can help us, I think, to move a conversation and think about different things that could be useful. Um, one of the things that we sometimes think about is, well, redistricting must have been causing this. We need to, and, and I'm not saying that redistricting isn't an important issue or a worthwhile one, and I think it's one that you might be talking about more. However, the evidence is not particularly good that redistricting has caused this because it's happened both in the Senate side and in the House side. Um, and if you also look at other geographic units that have not changed over time, like counties, we've seen these kinds of changes as well. So it's not necessarily about those kinds of boundaries that are driving polarization. 
academics kind of talk about a number of different factors, and you listed those off, I think, very nicely. A racial and religious change in the United States. One thing that, that looks like it's very much had an effect on kind of where politics is now is the changes that we've seen since the 1960s in terms of a realignment between the South becoming increasingly Republican and Northern and Western states. So that kind of broad cultural change post-1960s, post-civil rights era is something that scholars seem to be a little bit more kind of in agreement upon as something that's kind of push this moment forward. And that's a, a racial divide, basically, what you're talking about. Yeah, among other things. Um, we could also talk about a cultural divide in, in different terms, but you know, one thing that's undeniable is that um, this is a diverse and increasingly diversifying country, and you are seeing that play out in different ways. Just look at recent elections. You know, in the past, you had majorities of both the Democratic coalition and the Republican coalition that were white voters. And that's still the case with uh, the GOP, but with the Democratic Party, it's an increasingly a mixed coalition and a coalition which is reliant on non-white voters. I believe in 2012 that 45% of Obama's support came from non-white voters. So you're seeing kind of these certainly uh, racial divisions in terms of party support that are accompanying demographic, real demographic changes in this country. Gene Dubofsky, let me just mention you're a lawyer and a judge, so you had to be in a position of absolutely listening and finding uh, truth amongst all these various um, impassioned pleas that you heard time and time again. And you also had to get deeply involved in a political arena uh, in your you know, professional life. So maybe tell us about what you see out there these days. Well, in 1968, I worked for Senator Walter Mondale, who was the chief sponsor of the Fair Housing Law. And that bill passed with the support of both Republicans and Democrats. I don't think that bill would pass today. Things have really changed in terms of the alignment and composition of political parties. I also worked in 1969, when I worked for Senator Mondale, on President Nixon's nominees for the US Supreme Court. He first nominated Clement Hainsworth, who was a fourth US Circuit Court of Appeals judge, who was opposed by labor unions and civil rights groups and the vote against him divided between Republicans and Democrats. It wasn't a solid party vote. Turned him down. The next nominee was Clement Hainsworth from the Fifth Circuit in Florida. Another quick interjection. Nixon's second Supreme Court nominee was G. Harold Carswell. So as Judge Dubofsky was saying. He was considered a racist, a misogynist, and not a very competent judge. He also was turned down. The next nominee was Harold Blackman. He was approved unanimously. And his appointment ultimately led to one of the major divisive points in the United States. He was the author of Roe versus Wade. And we are still fighting about that. The other major case that I think has been divisive has been a gay marriage case. I worked on the first part of that, the first step of that, which was just to get U.S. Supreme Court recognition of gay rights. But we're still fighting battles that came up through the court system. 
And to me, that's very disturbing because in response to your question, Nick, I've always thought that judges should be appointed based on their qualifications and based on their pledge to be open-minded. And I don't think that's happening anymore. It's unfortunate because the candidates for judicial office, at least at the federal level, are lined up based on their alliance with a particular judicial view that has been determined by the Federalist Society. And that's where they're coming from. So I think that's sad. And until we get past that and move back to more moderate judicial nominees, I think we're going to have trouble with our court system. And Gene, let me ask you, I just had a conversation a couple days ago with a friend from Ireland who talked about the sort of momentous shift that happened there around the issue of both abortion and gay marriage. And in this case, both the Prime Minister and the Minister of Health changed their positions during the course of the debate and the dialogue from against this to for it, and it eventually passed in Ireland. And the explanation that I got from my, my friend was that because it's a parliamentary system, and it's not just A and B, you've got A, B, C, D, E, and you have to form coalition governments. Obviously, that's not our system of government, and uh, Nick, I know you're working on creating some more options, but is that the kind of thing that you could see as being promising, to have, have a, a third party or a fourth party? Well, I'm somewhat concerned about that for a variety of reasons. But I think you just need to have members of parties who are elected to office not having to commit to one particular view on a subject. And I think the real problem is that there's sort of a dominant view. If you're going to get through the initial selection, the primary system, you're going to have to have a particular view. And that's unfortunate because it means it's much harder for people to even if they don't agree with that primary position, to change their position later on. Maybe that will change. Maybe our parties will become more moderate and open to a variety of different views. I'm somewhat hopeful about that because I think some of the things we've seen in the past couple of years have been disturbing enough that people are going to say, even if we don't go to a multi-party system, our political parties can become more moderate and more willing to listen to a variety of views. Mm -hmm. Nick, do you see that there could be an opportunity for some fundamental shift within the confines of the Democratic and Republican parties, whether that's the caucus process or how the primaries are held, or are there some fundamental shifts that could take place that would change that in a good direction? There could be, uh, but both parties don't have an incentive right now to champion those, those changes. The trend lines are polarization, Democrats moving to the left, Republicans moving to the right. It's not symmetric. You know, I think Republicans have moved further to the right than Democrats to the left, but it leaves a broad swath of Americans feeling unrepresented. But, you know, Florida had a primary yesterday. You have a Trump Republican versus a far-left Democrat. And there's going to be a lot of voters in Florida who have to hold their nose and choose the lesser of two evils in yet another election. And so the primary process, I think, is a, is a driver of the polarization and part of the problem that we see. But we can't expect the better angels of people of both political parties is to change their behavior if the incentives don't change. If they have to get reelected by running through a primary, or if they represent a district that has been gerrymandered to be very safe one way or another, or if they have to continue to raise money 
from all sorts of special interest groups or single issue groups that force them to take votes on one way or another. So there are a bunch of structural changes that need to be done to force that kind of moderation. I'm not holding my breath, which is why I think new competition is needed, because that changes the incentives. If, if you had another candidate in the race or had to compete for voters in the center, it changes how people in office could govern. Carlo, let me ask you sort of a more down-to-earth question, which is um, you mentioned that the idea of having a conversation in which people are not talking about enemies, but talking about you know meeting people and being aligned on behalf of coming together as around their values, and those values could include all kinds of things. But do you have any experience in speaking directly with people who are on opposite side of your views politically or personally as a native person? The words that haven't been said um, in the last few minutes that I think need to be said are leadership. And what are the values that we have about leaders? Tribal communities are interesting because they're local communities. And a tribal leader is not going to be in office very long if they're not responsive to the needs, wants, concerns of their constituents. And I think that what Nick's talking about um, and what Jean mentioned about incentives is something that is kind of an obvious factor in all of this. And, of course, the financial incentives. Um, I think that our elected leaders, because of the structure of finance and politics, are certainly responsive to one set of interests. So kind of setting that aside and going back down to brass tacks and thinking about how do we have a conversation around shared values, I think we really need to articulate what our values are with respect to leadership. And do we want a leader who, for reasons that are related to values more so than structural politics, would really look at an issue from the point of view of understanding it fully and being responsive to what their constituents think about it. And that's, as I understand it, that's what democracy really is. And somehow, at some point or another, there became the situation in this country where the leader is the person and the person makes the decisions and the constituents are kind of like second tier in terms of whose values are really being espoused. And there's this whole gotcha politics thing going on. And the worst thing you can call someone is a flip-flopper. And that doesn't leave a lot of room for really considered decision-making. And to Jean's point about the judiciary, I think that that's not a standard that we should hold the judiciary to alone, that, that there needs to be a level of independence and responsiveness that coexist for leadership. To the direct question that you're asking about being in a situation where there's extreme entrenchment of viewpoint and trying to find that commonality, uh, downstairs, um, Nick and I were talking about this term that gets knocked around in politics these days, which is tribalism. I, it's just fascinating to me. I, I, we were talking about the origins and, and all of that, but tribes are not these kind of... Um, they don't have singular viewpoint. Um, and actually, the, in terms of political battlegrounds, they're some of the bloodiest I've ever seen. So, you know, I've never really understood that term, except to think that perhaps it arose when we're thinking about, like, democratizing the Middle East as a pejorative term for why we might not be able to do that or something. But one of the things that we're really promoting in our program right now is trying to not only empower leaders to be able to come from a considered, informed point of view, but also to create a situation whereby the people who are impacted by the leader's decisions 
have a real opportunity in international human rights parlance with respect to indigenous peoples. It's called free prior and informed consent. That they have a real opportunity to understand the decisions that are being made ahead of time with enough information to then give their vote, whether or not something can happen. And I think that level of agency that needs to be allowed to communities is a really important piece of this. And that's, I think, the place where values can be articulated in such a way that they might actually be able to move leadership to be able to carry them out. So the collision of values-based leadership and a political system that is entrenched in this two-party system does speak in some ways to Nick's thoughts about competition and letting the issues and the ideas rise up above uh, the partisanship. But Anand, let me ask you about the concept of an independent candidate or a third-party candidate. We uh, immediately think of either Ross Perot or Ralph Nader, yeah, <laughs> who um, I interviewed on E-Town a couple yeah. times. Yeah, Ralph Nader. So these are spoilers. You know, they affect the, the, the outcome of these elections in ways that are unanticipated sometimes. What do you think about independent third-party candidates? I think that there's potential there, you know, for third-party candidates right now. And we see every so often, as you just noted, in, in history, American history, we see the rise of a, a viable third-party candidate. As Nick kind of mentioned, the odds are stacked against independent candidates, third-party candidates. And I'll just add another kind of structural feature that is a problem that's going to have to be kind of thought about. When we have the kind of basic system that we have, which is single-member plurality districts, a first-past-the-post system, that tends to result in two parties over time. We see that not just in the United States, throughout American history, but we see that throughout the world. That's a real, a regular finding that we see all over the place. So, you know, if you come in second, you get nothing. And that tends to blunt the momentum of independent candidates, third-party candidates. And then the other thing, is, as Nick kind of mentioned, is that the parties in power, they have an incentive to stay in power, to write the rules, to uh, structure the financing system in ways that benefit candidates that are within that system. So there are some serious challenges to independent candidates and third-party candidates. I do think that there is ideological space, if you will, and what I mean by that is that there are people in the middle, there are moderates that are out there that are not being talked to by the parties. And so that presents an opportunity, perhaps for a third party, but perhaps for the big parties to move, right? And to co-opt those voters in the middle, as you said. Um, there, there's an opportunity for that. And what we do see on the data side is that leadership matters, all right? Polarization as a phenomenon, if we think about it in the biggest terms, it really seems to be an arrow going from elites to the public. The elites are driving the public to be more polarized. So if we think about the potential for change, it can also come from leadership. It can come from the people in these parties using more civil language, not using divisive rhetoric, which you know, on the behavioral side in the mass public only entrenches those outgroup feelings which we are predisposed to have. And there is something strategic about that, emotional language activating certain systems that make us want to shut down how we process information about people we disagree with. So when we get angry, when we hear that rhetoric, it actually 
entrenches those feelings and it makes us want to act. It's called the disposition system. I do a little bit of work on emotion and politics. And instead of the surveillance system, which makes us want to seek information, it actually does the opposite. It makes us shut down and want to act. And so some of these ways that leaders can do things can be moving on issues, but it could also be using civil language and it can be using non-divisive rhetoric. Wow, okay. What an optimist. This is awesome. So we're going to have values-based leaders who are going to uh, use civil language and engage the society where the uh, constituents come first. So that's awesome. That's amazing. I like that. And then they'll be able to respond to all the purple people who are in the middle. So this is going to work out great. I mean, I don't think it's a pipe dream. I ha- One of my friends is running for Congress in Kansas. She's a lesbian, ex-MMA fighter, Native American Democrat. And she is trying to take Kevin Yoder's seat. And I think she's going to win. And it's not because she's all the way over here. It's because she actually has gone door to door and talked to people about what it is that they exactly want to see from that seat and has really embraced this idea of lean-in leadership. And it's not this Florida situation where it's like polarization, polarization. She's been very conscious and intentional about that. And I think that she's getting a great response. So I I do think it's possible. No, of course you do. And so we all do. I mean, that's why we're here. You got to try, right? You have to try, just as Lyle Lovett says. You got to try. Let's talk about some practical suggestions. So if we are going to follow up our optimism with some practical realities, what's a practical step you would take in this direction? So I think the solution comes in three steps. Uh, There's something that we need to do culturally, which is get to know each other as humans first. Don't talk politics. Have conversations with people you may not agree with, but get to know them. Second is structurally. How do we change the rules of the game to incentivize better behavior? In Colorado, for example, in 2016, voters here passed an initiative that opened the primaries to independent voters for the first time who participated in June. There's going to be two uh, ballot measures this fall to change the process of redistricting to put an independent commission in charge of it. Those are positive steps forward to change the rules of the game. And third is electorally. We need great leaders. We need great leaders in both parties, and I believe we need great leaders running independent of both parties. And Unite Colorado's five candidates will be on the ballot for state legislature. It's been over 50 years since we've elected an independent, uh, and we're out to change it. This isn't theoretical. Uh, This is happening. Uh, In 2016, what gave me the most hope, a lot of people like shuddered when you think about the 2016 election. There are a couple of silver linings. One was in Alaska. There was a young first-time candidate named Jason Gren who ran for state house. He's very upset that both parties could not solve the state's fiscal crisis. He decided to run as an independent against the incumbent. He knocked 5,000 doors over five months, wrote notes to every house he missed. On election day, won by a little over 100 votes, but became critical in the house. They flipped control of the state house from all Republican control for 20 years to a new bipartisan governing majority two independents, three moderate Republicans, and the House Democrats formed their own bipartisan caucus. And they were successful this year in passing four bills on a bipartisan basis to deal with the fiscal crisis there. That happened because someone decided to step up and run as an independent. The other, uh, the other positive thing that came, on election night, I was in Maine because I was knocking doors all day because there was a ballot measure for something called ranked choice voting. Maine became the first state to adopt it. And it addresses what we came up a couple times, which is the spoiler argument. You might want to vote for a third party or independent candidate, but sometimes that may cause the candidate you like least to win. The way around that is by running elections. Instead of just picking one candidate, you can rank 
your candidates according to your preference, and the winner does so with a majority of votes. That does away with this whole spoiler argument. So Maine's already leading on that, and there's a group in Colorado that's trying to pass that right now in Pueblo and in Aurora. So there are things that we can do, and it's already happening. Tell me more about what that is, so you can rank your preference in terms of you know first, second, and third choices, and then that's calculated at the ballot box. Yeah, so in the first round of votes, if none of those candidates get an outright majority, then the candidate who has the least votes gets tossed to the side. Whoever voted for that candidate, their second preference votes get redistributed until someone emerges with a majority of the vote. And so think about Florida 2000, anyone who voted for Nader, Nader didn't win, their second preference may have been Al Gore, he gets the votes, and then it changes how the election would be run. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. Gene, what do you think about practical steps? And I know you're concerned particularly about the judiciary, so. Well, the practical steps that had been in place for federal judges have been removed, um, requiring 60 votes to approve federal judicial nominees is gone. So it's on, when you've got close party division, it's on a strict party line vote. That doesn't mean that all the people who get through that system are going to be bad judges by any means. One of the things the Federalist Society has done is find qualified people. I may not like some of their political views, but most of them are quite qualified. The state judicial system operates in a different way. It has a nominating commission that chooses the candidates, and people apply because they want to be a judge, not because they're aligned with some particular political party or an organization like the Federalist Society. So you get individuals who want to be judges, and the only time when politics comes into play is when the governor gets to choose one of the three people nominated by a nominating commission to be a judge. And the nominating commissions are required to have a political balance. So, And they traditionally never ask political party affiliation. So that system has worked pretty well for the most part. And only occasionally do you get a state court decision that people condemn on political grounds. So I like the system we have. I think it's worked well for this state. I think you have some very qualified judges. It's the federal system that bothers me. And it doesn't mean that that federal system can't work. The prior administration nominated moderate people. Certainly the US Supreme Court candidate, who was not even given a hearing, was someone who was very well respected and moderate. And that's the saddest thing I think has happened to the federal judicial nominating system in a long, long time. Do you see it going back to a 60-vote majority in the Senate for uh, Supreme Court nominees? Well, it depends upon who controls the Senate and how many votes they have. And let's face it, the judiciary has become very political in the sense of who makes the appointments. If Congress and the president become more moderate, you'll get a better judicial system, I think. Yeah. Anand, what's a good suggestion for us moving forward? Practical, human scale. Take a break from social media. I'm not saying get off Facebook, but what I am saying is that you might want to think how you rethink how you engage with Facebook. I have a, a colleague at the College of William and Mary who's coming out with a book called Frenemies about Facebook and how it can 
polarize us. So when we see these things in our feed that we oftentimes agree with and they're demonizing the other side, they just get us angry and they get us entrenched. And we're sitting there on our phone or at our computer and we're just getting mad. And we're getting mad at all these people that are out there, right, this other. Taking a break from that, I think, can help, can help us reset. Putting that phone down and if you, you know, pick it back up, re-engage a little bit differently. Avoid some of that stuff. If you see misinformation, correct it. Call a friend out on it, right? If it's a, a pejorative meme, right, or something that you just know isn't true, even if it's something you find funny about the other side, call them on it. Let's work on the misinformation problems together. And then to something Nick said, and from the work I do on people's interpersonal interactions and political conversations, engage with people you disagree with, and oftentimes in a non-online setting, because there's evidence that that can promote moderation, it can promote tolerance, and can help you to highlight commonalities. Cool. Carla, what do you think? There's one place where I think pretty much everyone would agree, which is we need to do the best we can to leave this world in the best place possible for our children. We need to protect our children. We need to protect our youth. And I know we all have different ideas about what that looks like, but I think it's a unifying place to start, and I think there are other places where we can find unity, and we should seek those out. Um, we're going to ask a couple questions that came from the audience, and then after that, I just want to make a quick sort of a lightning round about um, issues that we might find some common ground on. So that's coming next. First, a couple questions from the audience. How can moderates in each party have a voice? Participate. <laughs> in the 2016 election, if did not vote was a candidate, he or she would have won. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so oftentimes in party primaries, it is the more extreme, more ideological people who not only vote, but they're the ones donating, they're the ones volunteering, and oftentimes they're the ones running for office in the first place. So I know, you know, being politically moderate is a hard rallying cry. You know, what do we want? Moderation. You know, when do we want it? As soon as practical. <laughs> But I think if we take one cue from the political parties is we have to be as determined, as energized, as engaged as the fringes are if we want government to represent us. And so participate is really how moderates will have their voice. Anybody else? Read news media, and not just one-sided news media, but think hard about the issues. I'm aghast at how many people really aren't very informed about issues. And sometimes moderates are ones who say, I'm so sick of all of this, I'm not going to pay attention anymore. And I really think that's important. I would say one thing that we sometimes, I think, forget is that when people really stand up and they get activated, representatives do listen. Okay, So it's one thing if you kind of forward on an email to your member of Congress. But make phone calls, okay? Talk to staffers. Go down to the office, right? The local office or sometimes offices, if you can, in person. That stuff does make a difference. When you see things like child detention and all these things, there was an outcry and it forces reactions. It forces politicians to address the issue and you know, to at least give it attention. So I think that we sometimes feel powerless, and, but when people get together and they mobilize, people do listen. And I think that's important to remember for moderates as well. 
And I think one of the things we're trying to explore and experiment with today is, is there a place where the purple people can come together and find a voice that's bigger than an individual voice and, and have some political might and a voice that can rise above the fray? So we'll see. But I think there's a lot of people in the middle, as you guys have already described. I think that participation really isn't limited to political participation. And one of the projects that we have going now is a project to engage with companies on company behavior. And for me, it's a pretty straight line between politics and companies because of Citizens United. If you have a 401k, you have an ability to influence company behavior. And because of the kind of back and forth between companies and politics, that's another way to engage if there isn't a space at present for the type of engagement that you're looking for. Let me ask a couple more questions from the audience. Uh, This one's for Jean. Would limiting judicial terms be helpful? I think that's two-sided. You would lose some very experienced, very capable judges I've tended to support term limits because I think after judges sit for a while, they've seen most issues. And most issues are not hot button issues. You're just sort of, oh, I've already seen that and you've already made up your mind in effect. So I think it's a good idea for term limits for many reasons. But I'm also very concerned. I mean, we we had a term limit for the US Supreme Court. We lose Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And, you know, you can lose some very, very capable people whose roles are very important. And Clarence Thomas. And Clarence Thomas. uh, You're right about that. In general, I think term limits might help, but I've got some mixed emotions about them. This one's for Anand. Could you speak to the role of belief systems? When we kind of talk about belief systems uh, in the work that I do, we tend to talk about ideology, and we talk about um, how your positions on different issues kind of move together. One thing that's especially kind of noticeable and that a bunch of social scientists have kind of tracked is that in the contemporary era, what's, what's making our polarization in the public especially nasty is that partisan identity and belief systems are overlapping. There is mixed evidence in terms of geographic partisan sorting. There's some evidence for it, but there's also some kind of caveats. But there is a lot of evidence that there is partisan sorting of the sort where Democrats are increasingly self-identifying as liberal, and I mean that in an all-encompassing way of their belief system, and that Republicans are increasingly self-identifying as conservative in an all-encompassing way with their belief system. And when those identities reinforce one another, it makes us really dislike the other side. It makes us evaluate the other side unfairly. It makes us prejudiced towards others. There is research showing that people are more willing to discriminate on the basis of partisanship than race now in some academic papers. And as of 2010, 50% of Republicans in some national surveys were disapproving of intermarriage with people of the opposite party. (laughs) And it was about 30% for Democrats. So these things are extreme. (laughs) And uh, belief systems certainly play a part in that. Another thing that you might be wondering about, uh, it's not the driving factor, but there is something to it, is the secularization of the United States. So we're seeing more and more of a divide, not in terms of 
where people are going to church, if you will, in the religious marketplace, but more, you know, people who simply are secular versus people who are believers and do practice. So there is something that ties into that as well with belief systems. If I can jump in on that. The statistic is funny. It's also terrifying to, to think about nearly half the country is upset if a family member marries someone of a different party. Partisanship is the new prejudice in our world today. And the other terrifying part, I think, is that identity now supersedes ideology. How people stand on issues is almost more of a function of do they think of themselves as a conservative or liberal or, or Republican or Democrat because they've done, as you know, some experiments where they bring people into a room. Here's the Republican position on health care. Here's the Democrat position on health care. They didn't label them. Republicans gravitated to the Republican position. Democrats did as, as you would expect. But then the second group of people, they just switch the labels on the top of the piece of paper describing the positions. And all of a sudden, Republicans are now supporting the Democratic position. And wow. Democrat. So it's entirely how we label things, which is terrible when we think about, yeah. is this really about crafting good policy? Yeah. Or is it about lining up what my team thinks I should believe in and then rationalizing my position to get there? Yeah. And it's to Gene's point about educating uh, the, the populace about the various issues, because I think ultimately you're right, there isn't that much of a gulf between a lot of these potential problems that are contentious. Um, there's common ground, which leads me to my next thing, which is if you could pick one issue that would have the most likelihood of finding common ground or consensus, what do you think it would be? Workforce development. Workforce development. So by that you mean retraining and making sure that middle class people whose livelihoods have been threatened or changed because of outsourcing or modernization have an opportunity to start a new career with some training. Yeah, and I wouldn't limit it, of course, to middle class people because workforce development traditionally is something that is to bring people out of poverty. But I agree that um, part of the political lift on this is due to automation. And we want a thriving economy in this country, I think. And so that's, I think, a predicate for that to happen. And people understand that in their own communities in a very personal way. I just want to pick up on something that was just said, because we're here in Boulder, which is a kind of diverse community in some respects and not in others. And I just want to say, when we're talking about discrimination on the basis of political viewpoint, I just really want to make a distinction about the way we're talking about that versus racial discrimination, particularly, especially given what's going on in this country with police brutality. Um, these are very different conversations, and I, I really don't feel comfortable if that line gets crossed in how we're thinking about the word discrimination. So just wanted to say that. Anand, what's an issue that you think you could promote and find common ground? I think infrastructure spending. It gets politicized, so we kind of roll our eyes, but there are a lot of needs, right, across a lot of states for investment in bridges and roads and so forth, and that shouldn't be a difficult issue. Yeah. Gene, what do you think? What's a, what's a layup? Well, I have, I'm going to say three. Um, healthcare, environment slash climate change, and women's rights. So let's just dive in for a minute. <laughs> so healthcare proved to be pretty contentious and challenging for Obama. And so what Nick was saying before is that in principle, if you could sort of separate the goals from the methodology and talk about it and educate people about it, you could find common ground. Is that what you're saying? Well, what I'm saying is I think within each of those topics, there are things like pre-existing illness coverage. That sort of thing, I think, all of a sudden is beginning to pick up 
a lot of support. Yeah. I think it's very hard when you talk about the structure of overall healthcare. Yeah. But if you talk about who should be entitled to help if they're ill, I think some of that uh, ought to be yeah. pretty clear. And then environment and climate change. Again, it seems intractable in some ways, but I don't see, as we're rolling back cafe standards, fuel efficiency standards, and opening it up for polluting coal plants, it seems like that's not an easy place to find bipartisan support. Well, again, those are smaller issues. NPR this week is running a series on the effects of climate change on sea levels and decreasing value of property along the coast. And today's was on apple farmers in Washington, and because the fires have prevented sunlight from getting through to the crops, how much farmers are losing in terms of income and having to pay farm workers who don't have any fruit to pick and won't be available when it's it's available. That kind of thing, if Mm -hmm. you frame it appropriately, I think you can get a lot of support on. And women's rights, for pity's sakes. Women are over half the population. Men have daughters that they'd like to see do well. I simply do not understand why this is still a problem. Nick, what's an issue? I'm not hopeful that there's going to be a major breakthrough, only because we've seen it. The tragedy isn't where we disagree so much as it's where both parties actually agree and still can't get it done, because we saw that with immigration. You know, both sides wanted to do something on DACA. Well, why not do that and do something on border security? Like, these ideas aren't mutually exclusive, but it all goes to the point of who gets the credit, who wins and who loses, and how it's framed. So I don't know what the issue is that can break through, because... It was there on immigration. Theoretically, it was there on infrastructure. That, that didn't get done. Where I hope it would exist is on the budget. The budget is a big threat to both parties' priorities. If we do nothing, and most of the federal budget's on autopilot, we're going to be spending a trillion dollars a year on interest payments, which means that it's a trillion dollars we can't invest in education and, and, and research. It's also going to be higher taxes for future generations. So if both parties are true to what they say their, their priorities are, they should care about changing that situation. President Obama set up the Simpson-Bowles Commission. Republican and Democrat co-chairs got a majority support on it. They put out their recommendations, and promptly both parties ran away from it because it touched some sacred cows on both sides. But that's where the public pressure has to be applied, is to say the worst option on the table is to do nothing. That's the case on the budget. It's the case on climate. But that's exactly what we're doing today because we can't compromise with each other anymore. Okay. I want to thank our panel. I want to thank the audience for participating and for sending in some questions. Again, this is a conversation that's just beginning, and our hope, obviously, is that you go to the purplestate.org website and engage with us on social media as well. Um, We are going to wind things up with a video that was um, produced by Ali Lightfoot with some kids from Paonia, Colorado. Ashley, what are some things that you hope for the future, like when you're grown up? To be a better place and for there to be more happy people and no poor people. That the animals and the trees and all that um, are good in the future and nothing gets poisoned. 
the world's not just gonna end, but slowly over time, like when I become an adult, it's gonna be like, oh, like soon we won't have any sheep, and the bananas won't grow, or the mangoes won't grow, or the coconuts won't grow, because the ocean's gonna rise. And I don't want that to happen. I hope we have hovering cars. Cars that don't have wheels, they can just hover. How will they work? Like, they don't have wheels, they just hover above the ground in a funnel. Oh, cool. I hope um, in the future that schools still stay. Not a lot of people will go to jail anymore. Nice. I hope there's a Starbucks in Paonia. And that there's not so much trash on the ground. I hope that there's still recess. I want to make sure everybody has a feeling in their heart. I want them to have love and support to everyone around us. And to make sure that you all have a loving heart just inside. It doesn't have to be outside, but as long as you have it inside. And what I wish to... What was it again? Thanks again to our panel. Thanks for coming, stay in touch. Thanks for listening to the first episode of Purple State. Before I go, I'd like to invite you to turn the camera on the kids in your world and get their feedback on what they want for their future. You can share these on social media using the hashtag NextGenPurple. I'm Nick Forster. Hope you can join us next time. Purple State is a production of E-Town Media and created and hosted by Nick Forster, produced by Ali Lightfoot and me, Vanessa Mazal, and engineered by Todd Ayers. You can join our mailing list or find more info, including maps and helpful information related to today's episode at www.purplestate.org or follow us on social at Team Purple State. Thanks for listening. Some might say that eggplant is a purple vegetable, but I hate eggplant, so it's out. I don't care if it's purple.